Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, on the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territories of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. My name is Michael Welch. What follows is a special presentation by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. The country's diplomatic, aid, intelligence, and military policies are very much at odds with what the citizenry believes to be. Over the last several months, CFPI has been featuring public talks online on different subjects where the myth and the reality of Canada's true face to the world are distinct. In our first presentation this week, we welcome a panel discussion following the film Haiti Betrayed. The film is described as a powerful indictment of Canada's role in the 2004 coup conducted by the United States, Canada, and France against the president of Haiti and the subsequent policy in the country. The panelists are Elaine Briere, who made the film Haiti Betrayed, Jean Saint-Ville, the author and activist with Solidarité Québec-Haiti, Kira Polamon, a scholar originally from Haiti, and Brian Concanon, who works with the group Blueprint Project, the Founder Institute for Justin and Democracy in Haiti. This presentation was recorded on the 16th anniversary of that coup on February 28, 2021. The moderator of the discussion was Bianca Mugienyi, an activist, journalist, and director of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. This discussion was co-sponsored by the Canadian Union of Public Employees, Haiti Liberté, Interparis, Blueprint Project, Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti. Let's listen to Haiti Betrayed right now on the Global Research News Hour, beginning with the filmmaker herself, Elaine Briere. Okay, now I didn't intend to make a film. I, I went there to Haiti a couple of months before the 2010 earthquake uh, with my partner, David Putt, who's um, an aid worker. Um, he specialized in clean water and hygiene education projects. Um, he was the interim director of a small NGO from New Hampshire, and it was his first time in Haiti too. And we, we were both pretty ignorant about Haiti and we realized we had a lot of catching up to do. Um, the first time I visited City Soleil, I was stunned by the extreme poverty. Uh, I, I can't tell you, it just goes on for kilometer after kilometer. Um, and it felt as if people were, I mean, this is 400,000 people in this vast slum by the waterfront. It felt like they were undergoing some kind of collective punishment. Uh, also, at the time, Port-au-Prince was uh, occupied, heavily occupied by UN troops, like they were everywhere. Uh, there was a curfew at night. Uh, UN vehicles, like especially focused on patrolling, like in the poor areas, in the poor shanty towns. Um, vehicles and sometimes on, on foot, but usually they were in little with with guns at the ready all the time, little machine guns. And I, I got really used to seeing these troops because uh, when I was first there, I was doing a photo essay for a small um, 
NGO, a Catholic charity based in Minneapolis. And what they were doing was trekking water into some of the poorest shanty towns in Port-au-Prince, free water. And water is a really big issue in, in, in Port-au-Prince. I mean, people in these poor, poor town, shanty towns, they pay like 10 cents a bucket for water. And that's like about, a, you know, if you make a dollar or $2 a day, you can just figure that out pretty quickly how expensive water is. Um, also, I accompanied David when he went into the different um, neighborhoods in Lower Delma and uh, La Saline and City, City Soleil and uh, Soleil Neuf and Trois Bebés. And he was installing rainwater collection systems and filters in the schools. And so we got to talk to the teachers and principals in the schools. And I mean, it, it, um, there was a hesitation in talking still and talking about Aristide and Lavalas that we were curious. And there was still a lot of fear. And when we talked, it was discreet conversations, you know, away from where a lot of people were. And they told us uh, that many things had gotten a lot better during the time of uh, Aristide and Prevail. Um, I mean, they weren't perfect, but there was um, meal programs, the schools and housing and markets were being built. There was roads being built. There was jobs for people. Um, improved access to health care and many other things and all of this abruptly stopped at the 2004 coup and uh, I'll just talk about one more incident that happened to me and it was very pivotal uh, when I'd been there just about a month I, I was in uh, the main city square Shamas and it's the main city square in Port-au-Prince. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of UN troops around. And I was there photographing with my camera on my neck. And suddenly a man started shouting at me from a little bit of a distance and waving his arms and bland, bland. He was saying, you don't know what they're doing to us. You, you don't know, you, you know. And so I realized that he was causing a lot of stir and I was afraid the UN troops were gonna go and take him away or something. So I, I knew he, was, he, was, he wasn't aggressive. He was just very upset. So I just walked up to him and he started crying. And, and at one point he fell to his knees and he was saying, they're killing us. They're killing us in City Soleil. People don't know. You have to tell them. Like he, must, he thought he was a journalist, I think. And he said, tell them what they're doing to us. And so then I, I just held his hand for a few minutes so he could compose himself and he got up and he put his hat on and he walked away. And, and even talking about it now, it was a very emotional experience and it gave me a much deeper understanding of what people were going through about what I didn't know. Uh, and later I did find out a lot about the, the what happened in City Soleil, the big attack on City Soleil from the air, even at one point. So for me, on a personal level, uh, this film is a response to the, you know, the passionate plea of the man that I met in Shamas. So I'll just end it there. There's lots of other things I could say, but that's basically, it was an emotional experience at first for me. 
Our next speaker of the evening is Jean Saint-Ville, also known as Jaffrey Kaiti. He is an author, activist, public speaker, and artist. Jaffrey Kaiti is the co-founder of Akasan and Jacques Conbit, which follows the principles popularized by Marcus Garvey and is immersed in the global peace and social justice movement. He hosts or co-hosts several weekly programs, including Rendezvous ICN at Carleton University's 93.1 FM, Shesh Papesh and Paul Pushesh Shimen on RadioKaju.com. He's a featured political analyst on Canadian as well as international media, a University of Waterloo graduate and Canadian civil servant. Jeffrey Kaiti lives in Ottawa Gatineau, but returns to Haiti on a regular basis. Um, so excited to hear from you. I welcome you, Jeffrey Kaiti, to share your reflections on Haiti betrayed, particularly within the context of Black History Month. Um, listening to Elaine's words here, I cannot help but to have a special thought for my very good friend, dearly departed uh, Patrick Elie, who is featured in this film and who is really the inspiration for all of us uh, who continue this struggle as uh, after the coup, when we created the Canada Haiti Action Network, going from Victoria to Prince Edward Island, we met beautiful people like Elaine, who might not have been following what's happening in Haiti, uh, who tell us that they were trained to believe what they see on CBC, and who were shocked by what we were telling them. And invariably, when they asked Patrick, you know, what can we do to help? And his single answer has always been, be a citizen of your own country. And so I thank Elaine for the opportunity that she's giving all of us here to be citizens of our own country and indeed of a planet Earth that functions on different principles than what the scavengers are, are using uh, today. You know, I've been involved uh, in following Haitian politics uh, since I was in University of Waterloo and um, having um, uh, been born and raised in Haiti. I did the first part of my high school education in Haiti uh, under the dictatorship of Duvalier. And so when uh, the election happened in 1990, I was in, in Canada and uh, shortly after that, I returned to Haiti and spent the year 91 in Haiti. And you know what? To this day, I have goosebumps when I watch the film and, uh, and you see these people cleaning up the streets uh, in 1991. That's what the dream was about. Haitians were leaving Africa, were leaving Europe, were leaving North America, were leaving the Bahamas to go back to Haiti because we were in a project, a special project to rebuild, in fact, to build the infrastructure of our country. As you saw in the film, Haiti has never had an opportunity to build its infrastructure because the period they call the Industrial Revolution is precisely during that period in the 19th century that Haiti was being ransomed by white supremacist states, one after the other. You take a single year like 1883, you had representative dipl uh, uh, diplomatic representatives of Sweden, Norway, uh, the UK, uh, France, all of them uh, 
uh, presenting an ultimatum to the Haitian president, Lysias Felicite Salomon, saying that they will blow up the national palace if they don't pay them reparations because there were unrest in the country and some of their citizens claim to have lost property. And so people need to understand because sometimes they ask you, well, how come the Dominican Republic is so much more developed than Haiti? Well, there is a reason, there's a historical reason why that is because white supremacist minority rule has been imposed in the Dominican Republic and at a level that it is irreversible. Whereas on the Haitian side, the Haitians are still fighting white supremacy. You see a couple of characters that are featured in, the, in, in Elaine's film, uh, André Aped. Uh, his father, whose name he carries, participated in the 1991 coup and in the 2004 coup. And André Aped participated in the 2004 coup, as you saw described in the film. And he shows no remorse. And to today, what we have as uh, you know, the you know, latest developments in Haiti is that on February the 8th, one day after Jovenel Moïse, the black puppet that they put in place as the black face of uh, the, what I call the Caribbean Rhodesia, because that's what they've turned Haiti into, he gave 8,600 hectares of land to André Aped so that he can do a monoculture for Coca-Cola. Now, I mean, I don't need to describe how dangerous that is to take that large uh, territory to give it to a single company uh, uh, a person uh, and a white American. And people need to understand when we use that terminology, we're not being cute, okay? Haiti conducted its revolution to fight white supremacy. And so it is insulting to the highest degree that today we have Canadian foreign policy, and, and that's what basically we are asking Canadians to make sure that we don't turn this anti-Black racism agenda to some kind of stupid buzzword that we throw around and we don't do anything substantial to change the way we conduct our business in 2021. What we're saying is that we need to ensure that we banish every trace of white supremacist racism from Canadian foreign policy. And that means to normalize Canadian relationship with countries like Haiti, the Congo, Guatemala, Bolivia, so that we no longer spend our energy uh, instructing our ambassadors to make sure that they have puppet regimes in those countries so that when our mining companies go there, then they can spend a few uh, million dollars of corruption and then you know, don't do any uh, environmental remediation and then just go there and, and steal, uh, steal the resources of, of the people. And so that's exactly the, the work that the Solidarité IT Quebec um, is, uh, is doing right now in Montreal. Um, and we are eternally grateful uh, for uh, people like Elaine and, 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 and David who went to Haiti on a different mission, uh, but went and discovered themselves. And that's something beautiful about Haiti. So many people discover themselves uh, in that land because 
the wretched of the earth may be hungry. They may be, you know, wearing uh, uh, clothes without uh, uh, elegance, but they have a, a, a humanity inside of them that uh, um, is uh, more precious than gold. Aibobo. Thank you. And I'm looking very forward to, to touching base with you again during our chat shortly. So our next speaker is Kira Palmon. Kira Palmon graduated from SUNY Plattsburgh where she majored in political science and Latin American studies with a minor in Spanish. Kira previously interned at the Washington Office on Latin America for the Columbia program of the CEPR. Kira has written extensively and has a strong interest in human rights, racial and social justice, and US foreign policy in Latin America, particularly in Haiti, where she is from. Kira, could you tell us a little bit more about why there were such massive protests today in Port-au-Prince? Yes, yeah. Um, I just wanted to clear it out that I entered at CEPR, um, which is the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington um, last year. Uh, but yes, um, there's been protest uh, for three consecutive Sundays now. Um, and today was by far the largest. Uh, and I think that you asked me um, when we were speaking earlier, you know, what is the response um, of Haitians to what is happening right now? And I think that you know, if you just go on Haitian Twitter right now, I think that it's pretty clear what the response is, is, you know, standing up and doing what we did 200 years ago and standing up and saying no to corruption, no to, you know, neo-colonialist policies um, and saying no to dictatorship as well. Um, but to understand a little bit uh, why people are marching um, and why people are so, are so angry at the, situ at the situation and the political climate in Haiti. Um, I think for those of you who have seen the movie um, and for those of you who will see it, it ends on Michel Motelli introducing, who is our last president, introducing Jovenel Moïse. And I think that that should just tell everything about what we need to know um, about who Jovenel Moïse was eventually going to become. Um, and it, that, that's a particularly important point is that Jovenel Moïse was handpicked as Michel Motiri's successor. Um, in 2018, uh, the Peto Caribe challenge started on social media uh, and it beyond just, you know, getting people from social media to the streets as we saw happen in 2018. I think that one of the most impactful um, consequences of the Peto Caribe challenge was to get um, tangible results and holding um, the Haitian judiciary system accountable, um, which is why we've seen in the past couple of years, three reports, three long detailed reports uh, that all show the implication of Jovenel Moïse, uh, Michel Motelli, Laurent Lamotte, who were prime ministers and old presidents, um, their involvement and the mismanagement of the Pedro Caribe funds, which, as Jafri Kaisi mentioned earlier, you know, came from this uh, this uh, accord between uh, Haiti and Venezuela, um, and that has, you know. Uh, uh, political inf in influence that, you know, it's 
too deep to get into is the relationship between Haiti and Venezuela and why we're where we are today. Um, but these funds disappeared. All we had to show for it was half a bridge. Um, and people started asking questions and asking, where is that money? And it started this whole anti-corruption movement, um, which lately transformed into a pro-democracy movement because what we saw in the past year, particularly, um, was extremely alarming because democracy in Haiti was and is and continues to be threatened um, by Jovenel Moïse and by his government. And I know that Brian is probably going to get into it um, later on, but just a little bit of background. In January of 2020, what happened was that there were no legislative elections. Um, so Haiti basically lost its uh, legislative branch. Uh, there were probably 10 senators and deputies who were still, you know, working, uh, but there was virtually nothing. And the president was left to govern by himself. And it could have gone in two directions. It could have gone in the direction of Rubnan Moise taking responsibility and working tangibly to organize free and fair elections um, in order for the country to regain at least, you know, a government structure, which is the basis of all things. Um, but it went in an opposite direction. And what we saw in the past year was the excessive use of decrees and of executive, you know, decisions and decisions that were made um, only by the president with no consensus, no input from, you know, political, other political voices or civil society. Uh, and um, I'm also guessing that Brian's gonna touch on that, but one of the decrees that was the most alarming was that of the creation of basically a Haiti um, CIA called ANI. And what it does and what it did was, the reason why it was so alarming was because it practically allowed these agents to do a number of things that are in direct violation of hate, of Haitian law. Um, and, I think that that's another reason why, you know, people were so upset is because you have a country where poverty is is deep. You have a country where insecurity is rising. You have a country where massacres keep happening in a systematic way. And I think as Ilan mentioned it, um, there's, there's something that is super calculated. And those massacres that I want to mention is the neighborhoods that are attacked. Um, you see in the movies have been neighborhoods who have been historically um, on the anti-imperialist, um, uh, anti-racist um, train of thought. And so what you have is you have the most vulnerable, but you also have the, the mass, um, the political, the people who have, who have built up a consensus that they don't want what is happening, who are being targeted and who are being murdered, who are being you know, forced into fear, um, who can't leave their homes. And I think that a lot of us um, in the upper middle class and middle class have been sheltered for that from that for so long. And um, what changed this year is that there's been an, an involvement of gang activities and, and a rise of gang activities. And they they have not, it's, it's something that has been touching people from all sorts of, of, of background in Haiti. And um, unfortunately, 
that's what it took um, for certain people to wake up and see that this has been happening for, for years now. Um, but it's happening and what we're seeing, and I can stress how, how, how incredible it is to have a consensus from so many different, you know, members of Haitian society, you, it's really hard for the religious sector, the, you know, the, 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 the law sector, um, the, the human rights groups, you know, to all come together and say, we actually agree on this because there are so many different opinions in Haiti, but the one that is, you know, the one that's prevalent is that we're tired of this and that we we can't stand this and that this is we we need a fighting a standing chance to fight for our own democracy and um the last thing that i wanted to mention in regards to why there has been mass protests is because is that on february 7th there is there was this uh consensus that the presidential term had ended and there's debate around that um but as i said before a number of um, members of civil society came out and recognized that Jovenel Moïse term had ended. Um, and what was the most important statement for me was that of one of the highest courts of the land, um, putting out a statement and saying, Jovenel Moïse, your term has ended. And so a lot of people right now are living in fear because what is essentially happening is a hijacking of the rule of law, a hijacking of, of the judicial system, because again, through decrees, what we saw was, you know, the removal of three Supreme Court judges. And I think um, the hypocrisy here is, is, it's baffling because I do not think that um, Canadian citizens or American citizens would, you know, stand and stay home if, you know, their Supreme Court judges were were taken away, were kidnapped, or if they said, you know what, the president is going to be leading on its own. We don't need Congress. We don't need Parliament. The, this one person is going to be deciding, you know, what happens with our resources. And as we saw, um, not less than a day after um, the arbitrary and illegal arrest of political opponent by Jovenel Moïse, um, not less than a day after that, we saw that he allocated a vast amount of land to um, Andiapid, which undermines and pushes the anti-Black sentiment that's been coming from policies from the United States and Canada. Um, I think that it's important to, to mention and to continue to bring attention to the people who are being detained illegally and who have been detained illegally um, since February 7th. Um, and on, on the, on the, on the idea that they were planning a coup, which as we all know, did not happen. Um, and so I think that it's just, it's worrisome what's happening right now because there's a complete disregard for rule of law and there's a complete disregard for the structures of what makes a government. And I think that the reason, the simple reason why Haitians are marching and taking to the street is to say, we did this 200 years ago and we're here to do it again. And we want a fighting chance to create our own democracy on our own terms. Um, so I think that it's 
very fitting. It's a great event to bring awareness to what's happening in Haiti right now um, and to end the, end the um, structure of Black History Month to say that, you know, we Haitians are descendants of strong revolutionaries who paid their dues um, and in a very unfair way. And today we still have to fear for our lives and our own land. Um, and we're still being victim and brutalized by police forces um, that are again funded by Canada and the United States and just pushing this anti-Black sentiment um, and this neo-colonialist agenda that is really meant to, you know, benefit large corporation and the extra wealthy. So I won't go into too much of a, of a, of a rant um, because I can, <laughs> um, but I just think that, you know, this is an important event and the film is extremely important because I think um, I learned so much myself and I have um, a family that's pretty, you know, paying attention to politics since I was a young, a young child. And I never really, I, I always, you know, there's a, this really well-constructed constructed idea that Canada is the good guy and the United States is the bad guy. And it's very revealing. Um, so very, very great that this movie was made, that this film was made, um, and very, very happy that I had the opportunity to speak. You're listening to Haiti Betrayed, a panel discussion with the filmmaker and special guests conducted by the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. This program is a feature on the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on other community radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. Here again is more of this conversation. Brian Kincannon is a human rights lawyer and foreign policy advocate. He's the executive director of Project, uh, Project Blueprint, which works from a human rights-based uh, rights U.S. foreign policy by bringing the perspectives of people abroad impacted by U.S. policies into policy discussions and advocacy. Brian founded the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti and was executive director from 2004 to 2019. He also serves as a member of the editorial board of Health and Human Rights, an international journal at the Harvard School of Public Health, and is a contributor to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Brian helped prepare the persecution of the Roboto massacre trial in 2000, one of the most significant human rights cases anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. He has represented Haitian political prisoners before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights and represented the plaintiff in the Yvonne Neptune versus, in Yvonne Neptune versus Haiti, the only Haiti case ever tried before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Welcome, Brian. We're so happy to have you here. You were on the ground in Haiti before and after the 2004 coup. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about this and tell us about the human rights violations um, that you saw within the context of, of Haiti Betrayed. Sorry. Uh, hi, Bianca. Thanks for hi. that kind introduction. And I'll add one thing is that I'm Right now, I'm on the ground in Massachusetts on the unceded land of the Wampanoag. Um, and it, I, first of all, I appreciate being on, on such a, a wonderful panel. Uh, Elaine's movie 
what Lane's film, I knew it took years and years of hard work and it's, it, it shows in such a great film. Um, I thank the uh, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute and Center for Economic, uh, Ed, Economic and Policy Research for leading the advocacy in Canada and the US respectively um, for a better response by, by our governments to the current outrage in Haiti. And I'll add my colleagues at the former colleagues at the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti as well. Um, it, it really struck me when, when um, Jean mentioned that often people go to Haiti to discover themselves or finally discover themselves in Haiti. And I think that I discovered my, I discovered that I was a white supremacist from a white supremacist country in Haiti. Um, I guess I discovered is probably more, more agency than it deserves. I mean, Haitians very patiently and persistently and politely explain to me that both how U.S. policy had been for, you know, for, for 400 years, well, 200 years of the U.S., um, had been a white supremacist policy, and how I, as an individual, was acting consistently with, with white supremacy. And it was not a, always an easy message to hear, but it was a very important one. And I certainly don't want to be a white supremacist. I I think I invest significant effort to not be, but we're trained, just as, as Jean mentioned, or Patrick E. Lee mentioned, you know, we're trained to believe CNN. We're trained to believe our State Department when they make what is a white supremacist defense of a otherwise indefensible foreign policy. And I think it's, um, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us to be a citizen of our country, which means looking into how was our country formed? Um, what were the founding bases? Who was doing, who was doing a lot of the work um, and not getting paid for it? Um, who has been, who has been, um, you know, subject to discrimination across the board from education to employment to healthcare. And to think that, that we have such um, broad discrimination in every aspect of our societies, but that is somehow insulated from foreign policy is, is of course, um, you know, not justified by, by the facts. And, you know, it's a, I think it's a, it's a gift that Haitians, you know, have been giving the world since before 1804, but certainly since then, um, by insisting on, on standing up for white supremacy. And that is why, uh, I agree with John, that is why they've been suffering and it's our countries that are making them suffer and, and it's us who needs to, to stop that. Uh, in terms of what things were like in 2004, just uh, I'll step back a couple of years beforehand because in 2000, um, when there were elections, uh, there were a couple different sets of elections. And one of the things that, um, one of the elections in the fall, I think it was November, led to the to the election of President Aristide for, for a five-year term. And leading up to that election, uh, people were walking on air. Everybody was, they were cleaning their streets, they were painting the buildings, they were painting light posts. People were doing anything they could do to celebrate democracy. Um, it was absolutely, it was just a wonderful place to be with everybody happy, everybody's greeting everybody. And there was a, just an amazing sense of optimism, A, that Haiti could get better and that it would get better by Haitians voting and that vote being respected. 
Um, you know, of course, that optimism was was betrayed, like Haiti was betrayed, and and um, Haitians paid a, a terrible price for for believing in democracy. Um, and I think, unfortunately, um, the a lot of those that dynamic is still happening today. I mean, there's a there's a there's a lot of lines to be drawn through what the film talks about and what. Uh, John was talking about and what Kira was talking about in terms of in terms of what happened today. Um, the film obviously does a great job of, do, of, of doing that. And anybody who hasn't watched it, um, I would highly recommend it. And like I, I'm one of the people who watched it several times and every single time I watch it, I, I, I learn something significant. Um, two things I'd like to talk about. Um, one is what I call green lighting and the other is called gaslighting. Um, green lighting is when the international community gives permission to, to Haitian actors to do things that undermine democracy. Um, often this green light is somewhat, is somewhat hidden, um, but only somewhat hidden. And some of the examples of, and this is discussed in, 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 in the film, but as the, the uh, opposition kept organizing and they kept doing um, you know, illegal and provocative demonstrations, they, they, the, the, uh, the Canadian embassy and the U.S. embassy kept giving them money and kept giving them diplomatic support and um, kept featuring them as, you know, as this legal opposition. When in fact they were, you know, they were engaged in systematic criminal activity um, and including including violent criminal activity. Um, the the also our government, both the Canadian and the U.S. governments, gave uh, green light through substantial. Um, substantial financial support of both um, of, of NGOs that were that were uh, supposed to be doing um, supposed to be doing economic development or other non-political but they really were paid to be doing political work and in fact all the NGOs got politicized in the period leading up to 2004 and it was directly politicized because that's they were following the money if you wanted funding, you needed to you needed to support the the overthrow of democracy in Haiti. Um, there was also what I would call gaslighting. And gaslighting by gaslighting, I mean saying something that is demonstrably untrue. Um, but if you say it enough, people there's some people who don't know it's demonstrably untrue, and they're they're going to believe it. And some people believe if you keep saying it loud enough. Um, some of the examples there, and again, these are covered in the. In the film, are when there were arms, armed attacks being being launched against the Haitian government, and that was, you know, I, I was in Haiti at the time, and you know, it was as terrifying as if there were armed attacks, you know, as there was last month against against um, the U.S. Congress, and as if there had been, you know, armed attacks against against the government buildings in 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 Canada. I mean, it's a really terrifying and unsettling um, thing to happen, and this was happening over and over again. There were two spectacular attacks, one on the National Palace and one on the, on the police academy, but there were um, weekly smaller attacks. And throughout all these, the Canadian government and the US government in France and other members of the international community basically kept telling people that they didn't see what they saw, that, that these people who were attacking were, you know, were really uh, pro-Aristide people trying to create some kind of a uh, provoke an incident, um, and it, and they just kept saying that. Um, but 
it worked. I mean, it, it was it would have been laughable, except except one of, except we kept seeing it worked, and we kept waiting for you know for the international press, for members of Congress, for members of, uh, of Parliament to say you know this is nuts. How can you say that you know that this attack where several people were killed in the in the National Palace was a false flag when you have no proof? But people weren't doing that, and you ended up having a coup d'état, um, which was a um, you know, largely went unopposed by by human rights groups, by media, and by you know by uh, left of center public opinion throughout North America. Um, I think that in, in what's why that green lighting and gaslighting is important is that that same dynamic is happening again. Um, you know, Kira did a great job of explaining uh, how the, the the Haitian government has has for, for the last four years and, and before that uh, been systematically undermining um, or overthrowing all of the accountability mechanisms from you know, the Senate to the courts to international accountability mechanisms taking over the, the police, uh, forcing the press into massive self-censorship. And throughout that time, there has been no critique, almost no critique of any of this. And one, there was one critique I think that is interesting. Back in 2018, um, Susan Ford, who was head of the UN mission, she issued a very mild press release thanking the government for, for appointing a judge to look into some of this corruption and suggesting that maybe some two police massacres that had happened in the months before also be investigated. An extremely diplomatic and and light um, press release. For that, um, uh, Ambassador Ford was kicked out of the country by the Haitian government. The international community, which loves to lecture every loves to lecture Haitians above all about human rights, did not stand up. There was not a single protest of that that I can tell. Um, and Ambassador Ford was was. Um, was replaced by Helen Lim, who is still the head of the UN today. And you know, looking at, the, I'm sure that Kira saw a lot of these signs. A lot of the signs in Port-au-Prince today were, uh, you know, Ambassador Lalim can't count um, because you know she's she can't count when when um, President Moise's term is up because she is you know is saying his term still has another year when almost everybody in Haiti, including as Kira mentioned, the judges, including the lawyers, including university professors are all saying that, that his term is over. But the US is able to, and Canada are still able to, to give the green light for this by among other things, saying that, that uh, President Moise, after all he's done, has another year on his term. Um, they're able to do it by uh, the green lighting. What, what I think, now this is one thing I have to add to Kira's excellent summation, is the constitution um, which may be the worst thing that, that Moise has done yet. There's a constitutional referendum set for June, and it is making absolutely spectacular change. It would make absolutely spectacular change to the Constitution. It's, it's illegal in the first place. Um, like the U.S., it's hard to change the, the, the Haitian Constitution, and you can't do it by just doing a plebiscite. Um, and the reason is, they, they wrote the constitution two years after uh, baby dog Jean-Claude Duvalier had made himself president for life by amending the constitution through plebiscite. They knew what they were doing. They said, you can't amend it by plebiscite. Moise is amending it by plebiscite and he's doing something that is 
not quite as, as uh, it's more subtle than Duvalier, but it may be more damaging in the long run. He's getting rid of the Senate, or he would get rid of the Senate, get rid of the prime minister. Um, he would give himself uh, the president impunity for anything connected with official acts. He would allow, be allowed to personally handpick the electoral council for the next presidential election. And that electoral council would do withdraw the election after that. So he would basically be running the next two presidential elections. Um, the international community has not, has not uh, said anything about this being problematic. Um, you know, and this is adding on to firing the judges and illegally replacing them. And he's getting a huge green light on, on this, which could be about the worst, um, the worst of his power grabs to date. Uh, the other thing, the, the other, the, the complement to the green lighting, of course, is the gaslight. And um, it's again, the same dynamic that's happening that happened back in 2004. Um, you know, as Kira mentioned, there's a consensus on both a legal and a political consensus that that uh, that President Moise needs to go. Um, and and there's everybody from the churches, uh, right and left, people in the streets, uh, business groups is saying that that Moise needs to go. Uh, the U.S. and Canada are are saying no. There's no you know they're saying there's no crowds that come out. They're saying that that there is no real serious opposition. Um, and they're just keep, they just keep saying it until, you know, A, some people believe them who, don't, who, who aren't staying involved. Um, but it also sends a horrible message to the people who are fighting. I mean, if you're out there fighting in the streets, uh, you know, protesting in the streets or writing in a newspaper, and you're, you're, you know you could be killed for doing so, and then the, the U.S. government says there isn't any, um, you know, there isn't any opposition to Moise, you know you're you're in a lot of danger because the international community is not going to do anything to to stop you. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to to the questions. I'd like to go to that, but um, you know, once again, I you know I really encourage all of us to think about how we as citizens can make our own countries safe for democracy in Haiti, and that that requires us all to get engaged and to make sure that when our leaders are acting in our name, they really are representing us. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. And so some of these questions are directed at individuals, but most of them are for everyone on the panel. And the first question that we have um, is, how were the reputable NGOs that supported the coup persuaded or bullied or lied to and by whom? This lobbying must have been widely known. The film makes clear who the Haitian elite were, but who were the operators on the Canadian side, especially in Quebec? I'm just going to throw this out to, to all of you panelists. Well, maybe John might know more than I me. I think John might know a little bit about this. I know a little bit. The, the, the Quebec NGOs, the umbrella group for the Quebec NGOs, also sided with the dominant, you know, that the, that they were going to back the, the Canadian government in their policy of getting rid of, you know, basically getting rid of Aristide. And you have to understand that 70% of funding for NGOs in Canada comes from the government. So they're really not, not that independent anymore. They're really quasi-government organizations. And some of them, like Interpares, refuse to participate in any of this. But I mean, I tried very hard in the film to interview, you know, people from Oxfam, Development and Peace, and other alternatives and that, and nobody would talk to me. They would just, they didn't want to talk about it. So 
yeah. It was just simply a, and then they didn't say anything after the coup. They said nothing. Thousands of people were being killed. So it was, and some of them, like, uh, I forget his name, Pierre Boudreau or something, he, he was writing about how, defending the regime all the way, you know, it was really, so it was disgraceful all the way around, that performance, yeah. But, uh, so I, I could add to this that there were a couple of uh, researchers who did uh, some good work on the Canadian NGOs. Uh, of course, uh, as Elaine said, in, on, on the Quebec side, it was really well organized uh, mm -hmm. because there were some regrouping of NGOs that are present in Haiti and they organized uh, a pressure system, uh, really corruption. Uh, the government used its, uh, its funding as leverage uh, to get them on side. And uh, so there's one article uh, from the Press for Conversion uh, piece that uh, Richard Sanders publishes. And it's a very good one, uh, this one uh, issue uh, that uh, has uh, this article that I just showed, why is this NGO acting as a tool of imperialism? And in particular, what's important to understand is that it wasn't just a question of NGOs. They specifically went after the so-called left NGOs. And, and they did the same thing in Venezuela. Okay, uh, If you follow what's happening in Venezuela today, you'll see the same kind of, uh, of situation. And what's interesting to see is that many of these organizations today will admit to you that they were taken for a ride. Okay? It's not all of them who did, uh, did it knowingly. Uh, uh, some of them did. Uh, there's, for instance, uh, Focal. Um, I remember some of the conversations I had with Carlo Dade, who run Focal at the time. Uh, he happens to be a Black American. So we had some very interesting conversations about why, you know, as a Black American, you're supporting this. Uh, and, 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 you know, so it's, uh, and, and in Montreal Alternatives, um, uh, they, we, we had very tough discussions with Pierre Baudet, who was at Ottawa U at the time. And if you read what Pierre Baudet is saying today, uh, he's criticizing uh, the result uh, of the coup. Uh, but uh, it's kind of too late for, uh, for yeah. many of the Haitians who have died. Um, but I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this question because the media is also another one that like they systematically did a job. And Peter Hallward's book, Damning the Flood, is really a book that really documents this very well. And Peter speaks in the film. But I wanted to ask a related question of Elaine. Elaine, have you received any interest from CBC Radio Canada for your film? No, no, I haven't. And I did, I, I did, I had a friend of mine who knows people in CBC Radio Canada send it. But I should try again now that I've got a French version, you know, really. But uh, but it's like Brian said, you know, in the film, the the um, without the Canadian NGOs, the really good guys of the good state, you know, uh, condemned the Aristide government. I mean, they really made it a convincing case, and it convinced. It went viral. It went Le Monde. It went to all the countries in the world. So they. It gave a consensus, you know, about bringing in the UN and taking out the Haitian government. It was really the NGOs were the 
you know, the icing on the cake that really did it. And another NGO that we don't have anymore, Harper got rid of them. Do you remember Rights to Democracy? Anybody? It was a very, it, it was really a quasi-government NGO. Well, they did this report, this report, you probably can't see it, but it's called a Bitter Bicentennial. And one of the people that went down there uh, was going to be interviewed for my film, but he backed out in the end. He was afraid of his career, you know, getting involved. But he said he went down and none of these, none of these uh, NGOs, they, one of these people had, knew anything about Haiti. They had nothing, no links to Haiti that did this report. They didn't interview anybody in Lavalas or anybody in, you know, uh, on the government side. They just interviewed all the, you know, the usual suspects, you know, and, and, and it's just a terrible slanderous report. It's got lies and exaggerations. And this report went viral because it's a government report, a human rights report, you know? So this was a very damning, this is a very bad one too. And the young man who was there and he saw all this and he was very upset and he called me and he said, I, you know, I, I like, you know, I wanted to tell you about this and I asked him to be interviewed, but he just started, he just got a job as a professor at York. And, and at the last minute he said, I just can't do it. I'm worried about my, and there was another academic I wanted to interview and he wouldn't be interviewed either because of his career, you know, because he didn't have, they didn't have tenure or something. So, but anyways. I'll add to that, that the, um, the NGOs had a significant financial conflict of interest here. One of the, the ways that, you know, as the film described, that, that, the, that the Haitian government was overthrown was a development assistance embargo that the U.S. and Canada and other countries led against the government. And when you ask them, well, aren't you, aren't you punishing poor Haitians? They would say, no, we're not. We are, we are funneling money to NGOs to provide basic government services to the Haitian people. And these were all NGOs. If you look at their website, they talked about sustainability and helping Haitians build their own solutions. But they were willing to take money that, that, that the US and Canada were diverting from the government, which was destined for the government to provide basic government services. And they were willing to take that so they could do their work, which included you know, helping to, you know, to pay their salaries, build their headquarters, as well as providing some 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 services, but that ended up putting the the NGOs um, completely opposite of what their mission said. I mean, they were willing to take the money to precisely undermine the Haitian um, Haiti's ability to, to help itself. And there, there was so many levels of government, the Canadian government involved in this coup. Like the at some point that there was a. a a group of Canadian CBC journalists who went down to train journalists in the right-wing radio stations owned by Boulos and people like that. And so there was just so many levels of academia and, and you know, that were cooperating in this. It's really quite stunning. Like one reason I made this film, I was just, I'm just kind of shocked and I'm still shocked by why, but this, there's never really been a discussion in Canada about the role of Canada in this. Academia has been silent. The media has been silent. The left has even been silent in many ways. And I think that's because of the NGOs. And I've been called out when I've shown in a film of somebody who knows Oxfam or worked. And they, they, they think I'm insulting Oxfam. And you know what I mean? It's just, they just can't. 
it's just the cognitive dissonance is too much. So it, it's, uh, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important issue for Canadians. I think that we, we can't make a big difference about what's going on in a lot of countries in the world, but in Haiti, we can, we can make a difference. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I just hope people get really, get some press, get in the press, whatever you have to do, you know, don't be too silent and be polite, be, be you know, stick on principle. Don't, I don't like it when there's demonstrations and they call the police pigs and all this stuff, just stick on prince, stick to your principles and demand that the government stop this policy. I mean, it's like, like Kira was saying, how would we like it if our government, you know, was going, having the same problems that other countries were looking the other way and said, well, you just have to accept it, something like that. Anyway, I'm getting off track here, but. Thank yeah. you, thank you panelists. Oh, Jean. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly add that, you know, we talk about NGOs, but in reality, for all of the reasons that Elaine evoked, we're really talking about our tax money, because all of these things are funded by the government. And one element that I think we need to be very careful about in, in these days is essentially for me, the NGOs are essentially what the missionaries were. Uh, during the colonial time, because, you know, the colonial apparatus always functioned with the three M's the militaries that take over the land, um, uh, the merchants that are going to steal the resources, and then the missionaries who were there to convince the Africans or the natives that it's all happening for their own good. So the NGOs are doing essentially the same thing, and except that sometimes uh, these days they don't have the religious element, but they've added a new element in there, you know, so they're not selling Jesus anymore. Now they're selling uh, um, equality uh, between men and women. And so a lot of these new programs uh, go in there uh, under a supposed superiority or moral superiority of the uh, imperialists who are going to bring equality between men and women in those countries. Uh, and, and so a lot of the feminist organizations in Haiti um, uh, are receiving funding also uh, with, um, uh, with condition. Uh, and we've seen it happen very systematically. You just heard a panel discussion on Haiti Betrayed. Featured on the panel were Elaine Briere, Jean Saint-Ville, Kira Polamon, and Brian Concanon, and moderated by Bianca Mugienye. It followed a screening of the film on the coup in Haiti in 2004 and the subsequent policies instituted. It was a production of the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. You can find out more about the organization by visiting the site foreignpolicy.ca. You've been tuned to the Global Research News Hour, a show funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg unoccupied in Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. The show airs on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on our show, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music for this week's broadcast is Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music, accessible on the site purple-planet.com. 
I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Thank you.